and welcome to Pints and Politics, the Thursday, May 28th, 2020 edition. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political. Joining me for this online discussion about what's going on in the world of student environmental politics during this pandemic is our student panel. We have Malika Colette, Annabelle Valiant-Fraser, Jake Douglas, and Kaya Martin. Thanks, everyone, for showing up. Now, before we get into environmental issues and climate change and what's going on in student politics, because we're in this bizarre time, what are your thoughts about the current pandemic and how it's being handled by governments and institutions at all levels, including schools? Well, honestly, I think that Canada and our Ontarian government have been doing their best to deal with this. Of course, it is better, in my opinion, than our neighbors down south have been doing. We've really been, um, at the beginning, we really put people in front of corporations and businesses and put everything on lockdown and put in social distancing restrictions that I found that really helped. Putting people before businesses and corporations is something that I wasn't sure if our government in Ontario would be able to accomplish. But however, I've been very pleasantly surprised with what they've been doing. Yes, yes. A lot of people have said they've been surprised with, of all people, Doug Ford, he of the cherry cheesecake cooking competition. So <laughs> what else? What? Uh, how has this played out? I mean, for schooling, for your plans for the summer, for next year? It's a tough pill to swallow. Myself being a grade 12 student, I am missing on uh, graduation and, you know, some things that are very much looked forward to by uh, my school students. I've also just recently learned that I've lost uh, my summer job, but that's as a camp counselor. But the way I look at it is that there are much bigger problems happening in the world right now. There are people that whose lives are at stake, whose businesses are on the verge of uh, going bankrupt. So uh, on a personal level, missing certain social events and, uh, you know, rites of passage, I view as, as as insignificant compared to this this global pandemic and some of the problems that are arising. Now, what, what's happening in terms of the impact of the pandemic and COVID-19 on, uh, how shall I phrase it, the student environmental movement, the whole uh, the international movement that was going on that uh, Greta Thunberg uh, was playing such a leadership role in? What's happening with that? And, of course, the issue of climate change. The pandemic was a huge wake-up call for everyone, and especially for the environmental movement, because both COVID-19 and the climate crisis are crises that we have to address. And so COVID-19 just taught us that we have to learn to adapt and do things differently. So having this pandemic um, during April, during um, Earth Week and Earth Day, we had to do everything online, change to digital strikes, and learning to adjust to digital campaigns, which is totally new for the movement, but it's going to have to be the new normal for now. Like Malika said, I like, since everything's online, so people are posting, you know, like photos of themselves with a strike, with their strike sign every Friday. I just find that it's, I don't get the energy that I get when I go to protests and see all the people who are cheering and chanting. So I find it really a lot harder to keep my momentum going when I don't have the faces to see and the community supporting me. So I find that challenging. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's a connection. Well, I, I think there must be a connection to the difference between going to school or going to college and doing things online. Uh, you know, I mean, 
the province is trying to turn itself inside out, say, oh, online learning will work, and so on. And I, I had to finish the semester at Fleming online, but it's not the same, right? As you say, I mean, you don't have the involvement. It's, it's harder somehow. What are your experiences of online life so far in terms of learning and organizing? I'm always a very hands-on learner. Like, I like to experience things, and I like to have someone explaining things to me, like, over a way that I understand. So, like, taking me out into nature or um, perhaps doing, like, a fun hands-on school project for geography, like making a map or something. So I found online learning really difficult. I don't retain information as much, and I'm not as interested in what I'm learning. Um, if it's just someone explaining it to me over a screen. So I don't find myself motivated and I don't find myself remembering or retaining any of the information that is being taught to me, which I don't think is going to be very helpful for next year. But I'm still trying to do as much as I can in this online learning, as difficult as it is. So on to the whole issue of the student environmental movement. What, what is happening right now? We've entered into this sort of suspended animation, this uh, hiatus where uh, people are trying to figure out, all right, as Jake said, you know, there, there are large crises going on uh, for some people and the rest of us, it's sort of a logistical change, but what is happening in the mainstream movement right now? I feel as if environmental activism is being a little bit overshadowed right now by the by how hor like how scary and how uncertain the pandemic is. I really yes. hope that this pandemic will kind of light a fire under people's <laughs> under people's butts to get them to really take action because we're going to have so many more pandemics like this with climate change just making it worse. But I really think that people right now are more focused on keeping themselves safe than on really big movements that seem really far off. Some uh, Something that we can take away from this, obviously, it's very difficult to know when this pandemic will be all over and done with. But something that I hope that we can take away, uh, the, the global community, um, is that we are able to put all else aside if the problem is urgent enough. It hasn't yes. been yes. the, the climate crisis hasn't been treated in that way by in, in a political sense for most countries. But this pandemic, it came about much quicker. So there's that, that shock element for most people. It presents itself as a more direct threat to their health as opposed to the climate crisis. But it does set a precedent which can be used and the global community can see that we are able to make sacrifices and it's going to cost money. It's going to cost you know others more than... Uh, than some, but uh, we can do it. To what um, Jake said, climate change presents so differently everywhere, and it's hard to just point at something and say, oh, that's climate change, you know? So it's harder to, so to speak, convince people that it's happening, even though it so clearly is. But with coronavirus, you can see, or COVID-19, you can see the cases going up, you can see the deaths going up, and it's a very real threat. So it's a yeah. lot easier to just, you don't have to even question if it exists. It's just, it's happening and we have to react. Whereas because the climate crisis is more, it's harder to say exactly what it is than you have people trying to make excuses or say it doesn't, you know, climate change is fake just so that they don't need to make sacrifices like we're doing right now. Cause it is very inconvenient right now. Nobody likes to be making these sacrifices. They have to be made.
what are the connections between this pandemic that we're all living through right now and climate change? Um, both crises are affecting marginalized groups more than others. So in climate change, we can see developing countries that are less wealthy being affected by natural disasters and different climate change related events more frequently. And then with the pandemic, we look to indigenous groups that don't have clean water to wash their hands like we're told to do or other down south countries as well. Also with both of these, it's really kind of, um, with both of these crises, we really need to work on global action and individual action for both of these. So with climate change, it's like, oh, like if one person does like one thing really well, it's not going to fix much. But if a bunch of people do little things and they try their best at it, it's really going to make a difference. And it's the same thing with COVID-19. If one person decks themselves out in masks and washes their hands constantly, it's not it's going to help, but not a ton. But if everyone washes their hands and everyone tries something small, um, it's really going to make an effect, a good effect in the in the graph, in the curve. Now, what social media platforms are all of you on? Are you all on Facebook, Twitter? Instagram, probably. Instagram is the most common one? Yeah. Okay, so I don't know if you've seen these. Uh, now, I'm, well, I'm on Instagram, but I don't spend a whole lot of time there. Mainly it's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. But I've been noticing on Twitter and Facebook these little video clips of people walking into stores like Costco saying, I woke up in a free country and you're not going to make me put on a mask to get my food. And, you know, Costco refusing to serve them. I mean, really stubborn sort of attitudes. What's the equivalent in the environmental to the reaction to the environmental message? Very prevalent among your generation, Bill, not to... No, no, no. <laughs> Mick Jagger and I will take the hit, yes. <laughs> and that's obviously a generalization, but the, the concept of individual freedom above all else is yes. problematic in both these crises because yes. that, that mentality of I can do whatever I want, where do you draw the line? Yes, you have freedoms, but we live in a society where the, the greater good of the society is always more important than the, the luxuries or the conveniences of one person. So I see it as a very similar mentality as the person who's buying an entire store's worth of toilet paper compared to the person who drives a hum around because they think it makes them look cool. Now, why is it, and, and this is a hard question to ask because uh, as we all know, like uh, until January, when this thing began to break on our collective radars, the environmental movement seemed to be getting traction. I mean, that was my experience of the fall. I was seeing more news coverage. Greta Thunberg came across to the UN for a conference, and she did the trip both ways by sailboat. And you know, there, there was some there was some press coverage. So why is it important, particularly now, when that coverage has gone away, sadly, for students to get involved in these issues. In other words, traditionally, sort of before college, students tend to be apolitical. I sense that's changing. Why is that important? Well, I think there's this notion that, like, you can opt out of politics or, you know, like, oh, I don't really care about politics or I don't vote. But I think that's ridiculous because politics dictates every single one of our lives in so many ways that we don't even realize. So I think if you're an apolitical teenager, like a lot of adults want you to be, 
it sets you up to not really be invested or care or have that basic understanding of politics when you're older. You need to have a certain level of literacy about politics so you can understand what's happening. So I think it's really important to teach and to learn and to be engaged when you're young so that you can grow up understanding so that you don't just disconnect completely, which a lot of people do, sadly. Uh, I remember seeing a, a video clip, uh, this was last year before the pandemic, of the Extinction Rebellion demonstration in London. And there was this M MP, uh, British MP, talking to, uh, she looked like a high school student, saying, uh, very condescending, you know, of course, this very plummy private school uh, British accent, say, you know, uh, why don't you go ahead and you know get get a science degree, come back and see me in 12 years? Then then we can then we can have a discussion. And, and her reply was, none of us have 12 years. You know, none of us. <laughs> the the window is, is getting closing uh, with each passing season. So how do you react to people who say, and, and including some teachers? met. Uh, you know, your job as a student is to learn and prepare yourself for the future. Leave the politics to us. How do you respond to these people? Like, even though we can't vote at this age necessarily, we still have to have our voice heard. Because just as you said, we're, we don't have time to waste. Like, it is our future that we're fighting for. So we just have to do everything we can, even though we might not be able to vote like the adults can and kind of have our voice heard in the ways that other people do. Right. On that uh, comment that you mentioned from the British MP, I think it's similar to telling someone that they should be the one building their own cell phone if they have the right to use it. People specialize, and you don't need to be a specialist in everything. And in the case of this current uh, climate crisis, the science is all there. There is no uncertainty, and what little uncertainty there is in how the climate crisis is playing out is being tackled by the IPCC, I'm sorry, the International Panel, Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 11,000 scientists, and obviously there are students that will have that calling and will become some of the most intelligent climate scientists, and that's very necessary. But not everyone's job to to research that, um, especially in the short time frame we have. And I think that getting involved in the activism and political side of this crisis is just as noble as understanding it on a scientific scale. To add on to what Jake just said, like, I feel it's incredibly frustrating because if you aren't a scientist, you know, oh, why don't you become a scientist? But then those same people who are saying those condescending phrases are probably the people who aren't even listening to the scientists in the first place. So it just frustrates me so much to say, oh, you don't know anything, but you still don't listen to those people who do know things. Now, what about from people your age, students who hold values that, uh, and sometimes this, uh, look, I'm only, I'm only going to be young ones. Why should I spend my high school years on political issues that I cannot control? I feel like a lot of our generation, not a lot of our generation, but quite like not the majority. Lots of our, lots of my peers are really, really excited about things, and they really have um, issues that they are motivated about. There are quite a few uh, people my age that I know that have this mentality that it's like, oh, 
we're not going to be around for that long because of climate change, because of rising government tensions, because of all of these new viruses and things that are happening. We're not going to be around for that long. Why should I care? I'm just going to die anyways. And those are the people who really? don't have. Well, oh, yeah, I know a lot of people with that mentality. And like we need people who are actually who actually care who actually have the motivation to go out and protest so that we can change the fact that we're not going to have that long um, and we are going to overcome this obstacle. It's training for uh, how to express your views um, in a way that's more significant than just one ballot, because in a few years we'll all be able to vote. And obviously that'll be a very significant factor in the fight against climate change is that um, the people that will be most affected by it are going to make a make up a bigger and bigger percentage of the voting population, but protests and uh, political activism in general is how we create these movements that inspire other people to think similarly. Now, I know Greta Thunberg gave it one of her TED Talks. She made uh, the point that uh, what we do or don't do will affect my entire life and my children and grandchildren. What we do or don't do right now, me and my generation, cannot undo in the future. In other words... <laughs> You know, you, you, she's saying she's rolling the dice now, she and her generation, well, your generation, rolling the dice now for the future. And once this moment is passed, they can't undo it. So how do you respond to those who, who don't care, regardless of their age, whether they're colleagues of yours in high school or they're retirees on your in your neighborhood or in their 70s? Yeah, like she said, we can't we can't fix the past. So we. All we can do is prevent future mistakes from happening in the future. So we have to do everything we can now to fight for a better future and to change the things that have gone wrong in the past. So if other people aren't willing to fight, we're still going to do our part and just tell them what what the facts are. And I think that there's, you know, climate deniers, which are really frustrating people to talk to. But there's also the frustrating group who are kind of resigned in their activism. They're like, oh, well, it's too late. But I think that this might be a little dark, but say we're all going to die anyway. I'd like to elongate the time that we have, you know, like everything new, like maybe like, I don't know, like there is this movement to, you know, not have children because of the climate crisis. But for those who do have children, you know, give their children a longer future, give technology and science possibly more time, even though it is largely irreversible, you know, who knows, maybe in a hundred years, a miracle will happen. So I think we just need to keep trying to buy ourselves time because it's the only thing we can do. We listened to a podcast with uh, David Wallace-Wells, who's a, a young reporter who has really taken a deep dive into the climate crisis. And it's really refreshing, as well as terrifying, to hear what he has to say, because he gives us very real situations. He says the, the human race will, won't go extinct. We're going to live on in some way. But if we continue for what we are currently on track for, which is four degrees of warming, we will bring about an economic collapse twice the size of the Great Depression. There will be anywhere between 200 million and a billion climate refugees. These are fairly wide ranges, their estimates, but even the best case scenarios are beyond what we've seen before. And I think it's the the scale of it that, that needs to be expressed to these, like I said, these people that are reserved in their activism. It's, it's that this isn't a standard political issue that can be solved in four years when we get 
uh, a government that cares. It's again going back to David Wallace Wells. He says it's almost theological in its scale. It's mm. it's such the, the stakes are so high, being compressed into such a tort, short time span. It's which is terrifying, but it's empowering to know that we are the ones living in such a significant time in human history. What are the issues that you, the four of you, want to put? on the table that people should be talking about, and people of all ages, including politicians, what should we be looking at? What are your priorities for this? Something that uh, I think is really important in fighting climate change is um, not only like planting more trees and more forests, but investing in other ways to uh, like suck carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere. So I recently I recently watched an episode of oh I forget what it was it was a nature documentary um it might have been on Netflix I don't really remember but it was talking about the purposes of algae and how good that is for uh, sucking out carbon dioxide and really helping with our oxygen production and also I think that innovative designs such as like rooftop gardens in pictures of like benches in England that have vertical gardens behind them kind of as like back to the um, to the benches I think innovative ideas like that can really be the key to planting more trees and more wild and more plants to help us reduce our carbon emissions by a little bit um another huge priority for mine i think most people have seen that little graphic that's like if your bathtub was overflowing you wouldn't grab a mop you'd turn off the faucet i feel that the faucet that we need to turn off is the oil and our economy is so dependent on oil that obviously we can't just turn it off like a faucet but i think the one of the most important things in fighting the climate crisis is transitioning those oil work to cleaner jobs and that needs to happen now before all those jobs collapse. So I think just transitioning off oil to greener sources of energy and greener jobs is one of my priorities. I definitely agree with what Kaya said. Another thing that I think is really important is education. So I want, like, I something that I think is really important is having climate education in all of the school systems across across the world so that the youth can understand what's happening, but also so that they can know how to take action. Since there is a growing movement, but there's also a lot of people that still don't know what's going on or how they can help. Right, um, with what Malika said, and I think the education should start earlier as well. Right now, we're only starting to learn about climate change in grade nine. And last semester, a few of us worked on a project with our ILS class where we went into schools with um, for grades like one to, to up to six and and sometimes seven and eight and we did presentations about climate change to them so I think that and it went really well so I think that it would be a good idea to start introducing the concept of climate change and conservation and green energy to children when they're still in elementary school and not saving it until the very last minute in high school. Suppose in some imaginary world that I know at least this year will not happen, but suppose the four of you, when you finish your school year, you could start working for an organization that, that had unlimited to support you in environmental action. What would you focus on? What would you try and get people to do? Something that's interested me more and more is urban agriculture. Oh, yeah. Something that has, it was overlooked as a significant source of our emissions, the industrial agriculture. 
but has since been identified as a major, major factor. So that it would be a very big priority for me if I had the means to bring that about, whether it's, whether it's done through you know local initiatives or, or uh, encouraged on a you know large scale um, political kind of thing. That's something that I think is really cool. People can get excited about it because it's it's very real. Them growing their own food, obviously, it's not for everyone, but um, there is uh, it's such an opportunity that that can be used. It would free up so much so much land, and it would cut transportation that both the costs and the emissions related to that. And yeah, it's something that people can can see their progress very very clearly. Yes, I have a friend who uh, is very rigorous about this thing, this sort of thing, and uh, she resolved to only food uh, close to Peterborough. And so she hasn't had an orange in like quite a few years. And uh, she described, you know, what that decision process is like, because obviously oranges come from Arizona and California, Florida. Well, let's talk about tactics here in Peterborough. To what extent going with this grant program, this imaginary grant that will never happen, uh, what would you focus on here in Peterborough if you were going to move our community forward from debate to action? I don't know if this would be the biggest thing, but this is something that I'm very passionate about, is redesigning the transportation system and all the roads, because we are so car dependent here. Transit system is very dysfunctional, especially if you try to use it a lot, you realize more and more that it's, you know, it's doable, but it's very hard to get from A to B. It's normally faster for me to walk than to take the bus to places. So I definitely improve the transit system and make it a lot. It's a small town, so you could really bike everywhere, but there's rarely bike lanes. So making good, like complete streets with bike infrastructure, better transportation system, and maybe just like streets downtown where you can just walk. So pedestrian streets, stuff like that, just to get people off cars, I think would be a really important initiative. Yeah, I fully agree with Kai in this aspect. I try to bike everywhere and sometimes biking on roads like Water Street um, is really, um, does Water Street have a bike lane? I don't think they do um, near the zoo, especially. And it's, it can be really busy and scary. And yeah, just investing in like separated bike lanes. Um, I remember watching a documentary about um, a city in Germany that had separated bike lanes, like they had their own lights and traffic. And it got lots and lots of people out of their cars and onto bikes. Even if it was snowing or if it was railing, people would still be biking around. And I think that's um, a really important thing to have to make sure that bikers feel safe so that we can get more on the roads. I definitely agree with that. I've had the opportunity of visiting some places in Europe where these things are, are really, really effective. And an argument that often comes out from Canadians is that we, we get too much snow in the winter it's not worthwhile to create this infrastructure for you know use for only six to eight months a year. Um, but on that, there are places like Copenhagen that get not quite as much snow as us, but they still get very cold. And rather than use this as an excuse, they come up with solutions. They have they have their sewage pipes running underneath the bike lanes because right. it's difficult to get a snowplow in there because they're. But they come up with these ideas and just that the natural flow of water underneath there melts the snow on top but there are ways to get around it and uh, it's just a matter of of using them rather than coming up with excuses okay well what else could we do in peterborough that uh, when i say we what, what else could the environmental movement do like specific actions that would make a difference here 
Um, something about Peterborough is that it is a very car-oriented city. Most of the cities in North America are because when we were founded, we did have cars, so we could get around a lot easier. But something to make it more easy, easier for people who are walking or people who are biking is to kind of keep the city a bit more compacted. So instead of spreading out and spreading out suburban neighborhoods around Peterborough, we could focus more on taking an empty lot downtown and turning it into apartment buildings for people with lower incomes. Or we can really focus on keeping things centralized and growing things up instead of out. Yes. Now, what, what could be done to change how we plan and design our city? Right. I mean, s- suburbs are sort of built into our DNA. Oh, well, we'll build some more new houses. We'll create a new suburb. And out and out it goes. How do you stop that? Anyone else? I think something we can do in general is just keep pushing our city council to put the climate first in all of their decisions. So just like all of their decisions in general, that they need to be considering the climate and the impact they're going to have. So when they're planning new buildings, that they're thinking about where and how they can best accommodate them. Um, Retrofitting buildings is another one. So just making sure that new and existing buildings are as energy efficient as they can be. And I've read that, uh, well, the Trudeau government claims they have a... uh... A, a feminist lens through which they filter all decisions. How does this affect the status of women? And you know, who's to argue against that? What about an environmental lens for our city? In other words, every action the city approves has to be evaluated through this this way of seeing the world. I think that would be a really great way to go. Um, maybe to do that, we could introduce some Indigenous leaders or some people who have a really um, – intense or like a depth knowledge of how their indigenous communities work and kind of bring them into our governments and say hey like you were in charge of this land for so long how did you keep it so healthy how did you support it and it supported you at the same time and try to um, filter all of our decisions through that lens of indigenous learning and uh, right. land keeping. Something that is becoming pretty common for all forms of government to do is declare climate emergency. The of it have a little bit been put on hold because it was declared kind of recently. And with COVID, you know, there are uh, there are other priorities. What that can do, not to say that it will happen in every case, but the declaration of a climate emergency gives these politicians uh, the framework of the, the word emergency. And like COVID, it's something that we need to make sacrifices for. And sometimes it means, um, pulling money out of other projects or delaying them because it's understanding that our house is on fire. This is, you know, it affects every decision we make economically, socially. Now, how do you how do you see that uh, our house is on fire, that attitude being expressed by governments at all levels, uh, City Hall in Peterborough, the province of Ontario, federally, in Ottawa? Do you see that attitude? I personally don't see that attitude as much. Um, I remember when we were when we wanted the government of uh, for Peterborough to declare a climate emergency. Um, we were really serious about it, and I did see it a little. They seemed so like we did have a unanimous vote, I believe, but it didn't seem as urgent as it needed to be. And right. I don't think governments are quite grasping. Perhaps they are grasping the um, the necessity that this needs to be our top priority. But with the pandemic and with 
other issues that we're having, I don't think that they're seeing it as the priority that it needs to be seen as. And the pandemic aside, the government understands that it's some people's top priority, the environmental movement, but I don't think they see it. They see it more as like who to appease the environmental group, which, you know, is sadly growing, isn't just like the norm. So I'm just going to pull a little bit of environmental policy into my politics, but I'm also going to do things behind the scenes that completely go against what I've just done. So I think, you know, like, I think that most government now, you know, I see a lot more environmental policy than there would have been like lots of years ago. So there is a positive movement, but it's not a priority. It's just appeasing environmental activists. But I think true environmental activists want to see more. You know, that's not appeasing us at all. I'm glad you mentioned that it reminds me of a country that is doing really, really interesting things on the climate crisis, and that's the country of Bhutan. Oh, yeah. A little country in the Himalayas. And they're, first of all, they are the only country to be confirmed as carbon neutral or carbon negative, meaning that their their emissions are less than the carbon that is sequestered by the forests, even though it's a fairly small country. How, what, that, what that really boils down to politically is that they act on values rather than interests because a lot of governments they they look at their situations individually and they make decisions based on what will benefit the people or what they think will benefit people in that specific situation and what the people will like whereas values if you make one of your values to combat climate change at all costs you might make decisions that won't get you reelected or that will make a lot of people mad um, but it's understanding that Climate change is important in everything that you do, and that's something that Bhutan has really embraced. I think there's um, a need for, like, climate change shouldn't be political. It shouldn't be that some parties support it and others don't, because that just means as we cycle through parties, it's like policies are going to be made and then policies are going to be reversed. I think it's important that just, like, the government itself has the mandate to combat the climate crisis, just like any government, like any party that was in power right now would be taking action against COVID-19. So similarly, I think that it should be the same with the climate crisis, that it shouldn't be a matter of, oh, this party likes the environment, this party doesn't. It should be that every single government, no matter what, needs to take change, needs to make change. Yeah, I agree with what Ty said. I think that governments just really need to align align what they're going to do with the science and what the scientists are telling them, because that, like those are the facts, instead of listening to certain groups of people that tell them not to do something or tell them to do something, because the facts are there, and they just need to listen and act accordingly. Well, we've been dancing around, skirting around the topic of politics. So let's get into it a bit. What what political parties, what levels of government, what countries are getting this right? Uh, is there anything happening at any level of government anywhere, in North America or elsewhere, that is encouraging to you? Um, well, in Canada, we do have our own Green Party. And although I don't know how much of a chance they have of getting elected into office, Um, I do really support them. I think that they have the right idea. They have the right sense of the intenseness of 
this issue of climate change and how fast it needs to be acted upon out of all of our governments. I think they have the best policies to be able to fight this. However, I don't think that there is they're not a big enough party and they're not they're quite new. So I don't know how viable it is for them to be in office. I just I hope that they will be able to. I really think that if they were in office, we can make some changes. But again, it shouldn't be the political party that is dictating what our actions on climate change is. It should be the whole country and the whole world deciding that this is an issue and everyone has to be working on it. What about the other Canadian political parties? What if you're handing out grades A, B, C, D, and F? Uh, what would you give? What would you give our Liberals, our Conservatives, the NDP, the Greens you've spoken of? I'm personally very unimpressed with Mr. Ford's view on climate change. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. His target of targeting the the carbon tax is, I find, almost criminal, and I say that because he denies so much science and proof that is already there, both economically and environmentally. The Nobel Prize winner a few years proved that a carbon tax can be beneficial to the economy in the long term. He, he, he completely overlooked the, or undermined the, the fact that most Canadians will receive a rebate equal to or greater than the taxes they'll be paying. It's an effective way of targeting those who emit most. And of course, there are details to be worked out how it affects corporations as opposed to individuals, but he has completely misrepresented government mandate from the Trudeau government really is, and has made it look like a greedy money grab by the federal government, whereas in reality, it's a very, very well thought out program that's proven to work, that he is, he's choosing how he portrays it for his own benefit. Now, on the federal level, no, thanks for that, Jake, that's Ontario, certainly. On the federal level, how are our political parties doing? We, we've heard uh, about the Greens, the others? I'm not super impressed with um, what the Liberal ha government has done. You know, there's the classic, declare a climate emergency and then buy a pipeline. It just yeah. seems <laughs> they're trying to please everybody, but in reality, they're pleasing nobody. And maybe that's what you get for being a centrist party. You know, you're trying to please both sides. But I think that you can't support oil workers without transitioning them to a new job because that's the way it's going in the future. There is a limited supply of oil and eventually they're going to need a new job. So I think that the government, you know, they do have little policies that are definitely good. And I'm happy to see their, you know, little initiatives of rebates and their carbon tax policy is a good one. But just overall, I think that you can't please both sides and they need to just yeah. Stop supporting yeah. Alberta in that oil because that's just so much of our emissions right there. For the NDPs, I think similar to what Annabelle said about the Greens, they're a smaller party as well, so we don't see quite as much from them, but they definitely do have more environmental policies than some of the other parties. Um, we haven't got to see a lot of them, but yeah, they're kind of in between the Liberals and the Greens, but they're definitely getting more environmental. I remember um, back in, oh, I, it was it was fall or early winter, we, a few of us, well, in this class that we were in, we had a talk with uh, the leader of the Conservative Party of Peterborough, and he kept saying <laughs> that the Conservatives had an 80-page climate change plan. 
60, sorry, 60 page <laughs> climate change plan. I have yet to see this climate change plan. I have looked it up many times. Um, I cannot locate it online or on their government uh, page, but I would really like to see it because I don't see much coming from the conservatives with climate change. They're more focusing on, again, they're supporting oil, they're supporting pipelines. When we did talk to the leader of the party in Peterborough, he did talk about supporting like initiatives and like green tech, green tech. Yes, that was the word he used green tech. He was really that was pretty much the only thing that he did talk about when it came to climate change was supporting these people who were coming up with green technology with like using animal manure to make electricity. I'm not sure if that was exactly it. I'm just using that as an example. But I don't see much with policy with them. I don't see much policy. And Annabelle, I just want to elaborate on that. The I want to name who it is, because I think it's important to uh, hold our politicians accountable. If I'm not wrong, that was our, our MPP, Dave Smith. And I think it's it's important to mention who it is because they are our politicians and we need to know who they are and what they're doing because it's very easy for for them to come up with these, these plans that, that may sound good. But we should be able to contact Mr. Smith and and our other politicians here in Peterborough or Ontario or in Canada and know what they're up to. So I just wanted to, to put his name out there because I think that was important. Sorry, Jake, to contrast that, I was talking about when Michael Skinner came into our classroom. I'm sorry. Um, but Dean Smith, again, I do think he is uh, guilty of that. Right, right. Okay, now if we were going to have a, a reunion in two or three years, uh, you know, the four of you, what would that be? It would be uh, late May 2023, and we had a chance to sit down, hopefully face-to-face, -face, no longer. And what actions or changes would you like to be able to look back on with pride and satisfaction and indeed celebrate? The main thing is just seeing the governments take leadership on the climate crisis and just prioritizing it in all of their decisions. So just seeing them really step up their game in all, um, in all issues, but putting the climate first when they think about other issues. Another thing that I would like to see is that I think we, this COVID crisis is a huge opportunity. And now I understand, you know, we can't fight two world stopping problems at once. Like we, we can't. But I think the second that we start fixing this one, we need to jump on the climate crisis with the same passion, the same economic resources. Like the fact that the government is giving a good chunk of people who are unemployed and who fit it $5,000 every month, you know, that money, they don't just have that money. They're loaning the money. They're just making the money appear because they need it. And we need that same amount of mobilization economically and socially for the climate crisis after this, because this proved that we can get that money if we need it, you know, whereas yes. normally are like, oh, you know, we just don't have that money. Yeah, to add on to what Kai was saying, I think after this pandemic is over, we really need to work on a just recovery and just changing the status quo of what normal means in our society, because we've seen with this pandemic that normal clearly wasn't working, so that we need to find more ways to adapt in the future when this is over. Now, you use the phrase a just recovery. Could you say some more about that? So a just recovery is recovering well from this pandemic. So recovering in a new way and transitioning into a better lifestyle, into a different lifestyle, and just making changes where we're going to put the climate first, but not just climate. We're going to look, prioritize indigenous rights and just change the way that our society works after this pandemic. 
Yes, I, you know, as this thing has unfolded, one of the slogans that's uh, really bothering me is this notion, uh, and you've heard it, uh, I mean, you hear it 20 times a day, uh, we're all in this together. <laughs> What's your reaction to that? <laughs> um, I think that is a slogan that, first of all, it it, it is tra very transferable to climate change. Um, I don't think it should just be used in the context of this pandemic. I think like world leaders and people who are like billionaires and celebrities, they're using the slogan, but they're not really all in this together. Like if, if they were all in this together, they would be using their money not to sit in their yachts in the middle of the ocean and be like, oh, I can't believe I can't see anyone. Like this is so annoying um, to actually help cause real change, perhaps uh, start a fundraising thing using lots of their own money to help buy masks for people in hospitals or help supply uh, people with lower incomes with food and resources. And I think this slogan should also be applied to the climate change crisis because we are we all live on this earth. We're all going to be affected by it. We are all in this together with that as well. And I think that the top one percent of the population uh, should put their money where their mouths are and start actually using their money to help instead of letting it sit in their banks and doing nothing. Okay, we have just a few minutes left. Uh, any last thoughts you'd like to put out there? Um, I would say that this crisis has shown the best and the worst of humanity. So I think it's shown us, you know, like the slogan, we're all in this together. To some sense, it has really unified everybody. We've seen communities coming together, people dropping off food at food banks, all the frontline workers. It's very almost heroic the way that the way that communities are coming together but at the same time sadly it is showing kind of the worst of what's happened to the world all those people you know saying i you know like i need a haircut in those big protests with the song <laughs> it's absolutely oh ridiculous just showing the worst so i think we hopefully can take the best away from this the unification the way we're working together for a common goal and apply that to the climate crisis because that's the only way that we're going to solve anything not with the people who are putting their own rights of a haircut above the public safety and health of everybody else which is ridiculous other ideas i am a firm believer that we can do anything with the right mindset so it's a matter of figuring out how we're going to do it rather than, than using the problems we find as excuses because something big is going to happen and we're either going to be winners or we're going to be losers so for example i would rather i would rather put in the effort now um, and teach kids about it in school and and make it the sacrifice that we need to make than have this era taught in our history curriculum 300 years from now as the main reason why the, the earth is the miserable place that it, it will be so we're, we're not avoiding anything by delaying it. And we're just going to be a whole lot healthier as humanity if we bite the bullet and, uh, and get our hands dirty. Right. All right. Anyone else? Yeah, as Jake and Kaya said, we both um, just need to all unify and work together because it is possible to enact change in the climate crisis as we've seen with COVID-19. So if we all just continue working together, changing our mindsets, as Jake said, and really just pushing for change, I think it is possible and it can happen. Great. Well, on that note, well, thank you so much, uh, Malika, Annabelle, Jake, and Kaya for doing this. This has been our 20th program of the 2020 season here in Trent Radio. We're calling it Season Bazaar. Of course, this 
program was recorded at home and all the voices you heard were in their homes, all recorded online. Um, Trent Radio House is closed for the foreseeable future until the pandemic lifts. In addition to this radio show, Pints and Politics is streamed live from the Trent Radio website. Uh, we post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics podcast. Any feedback, please comment on the podcast site I just mentioned or send me a note at bill.templeman, that's M-A-N, at gmail.com. So thanks for listening. Until Thursday, uh, June 4th, when a panel of financial experts gathers to explore money issues brought on by the pandemic, this is Bill Templeman. <laughs>